this conference right now, for, at least for this portion of the conference, we are, I think, focusing more on the challenges of China. So with that, uh, I would like to kick off our first debate. Uh, the proposition for this debate, as you may have seen online, is China's new normal of increased military activities in the Taiwan Strait is likely to lead to a U.S.-China or China-Taiwan crisis or conflict in the next year or two. This past August, the Chinese PLA conducted unprecedented military exercises near Taiwan. These exercises held in response to Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan included missile tests near Taiwan's waters and routine crossings of Taiwan's Strait median line. Some have begun to consider China's increased military exercises around Taiwan as a new normal that will feature routine and aggressive exercises by the PLA. So this morning's proposition, before we actually have our um, experts debate this, I would like to get your votes on, uh, on this issue. So to vote, uh, you, you can see here, you can either vote online through the website, or if you're here in person, you can text 2233, and then you text China Power to 223, one word. And after you uh, text that, you'll see a poll come out, uh, you'll see a response of a poll. And if you agree with this proposition, you text A. If you disagree, you text B. So let me just give everyone a minute to figure out how to do that on your phone. I would really appreciate those, particularly in the audience, if you could uh, do this poll, because we did a poll on Twitter, but I think it's also very indicative the day of to see how folks actually view this, particularly those watching the discussion. Okay, so as we're giving time for folks to vote, let me introduce our, uh, our two speakers. So arguing for this proposition is uh, Mr. John K. Culver, non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and former, former Central Intelligence Agency senior intelligence officer. Mr. Culver has 35 years of experience as a leading analyst of East Asian affairs, including security, economic, and foreign policy dimensions. Arguing against this proposition is Dr. Alexander Huang, chairman and CEO of the Council on Strategic and Wargaming Studies and special advisor to the chairman and director of international affairs of the Kuomintang Party, KMT. Dr. Huang previously served in the Taiwan government as deputy minister of the Mainland Affairs Council and has worked closely with consecutive governments on foreign and security policy matters. So thanks to both John and Alexander for joining us today. Uh, but before the debate, let's share the results of the live poll. So I think uh, the poll results show that uh, John has a strong case that he needs to make. Uh, it seems about 70%, 68% of those listening right now seem to agree that we're not going to see a crisis or conflict in the Taiwan Strait in the next year or two, at least not caused by the new normal of increased military activities. Uh, Hannah, if you could also show the polling that we did on Twitter. Uh, I think this poll was on Twitter for three days, so a little bit more time which showed the results were a little bit more uh, evenly spread. 45, 46% agreed that there, we might see a crisis or conflict, and about 55% disagreed. So again, John, you're arguing for the harder position. So maybe uh, to give perhaps John as well as Andrew, Alexander more time, let me turn the floor to John now for uh, your initial opening remarks. Thank you. I like a challenge. Nowhere to go but up. 
Um, I want to thank CSIS and the China Power Project, and especially Bonnie Lynn, for hosting this event. It's a pleasure to debate Alexander on this vital topic. First, uh, I'll bend the rules uh, slightly by redefining the pro debate proposition. Uh, the new normal of increased Chinese military activities is a symptom rather than the cause of momentum toward crisis or conflict in the next year or two. I see little evidence China has a fixed timeline and agenda for compelling Taiwan, whether based on some assumptions that as soon as the PLA is ready, China will launch an invasion, or that the Communist Party will launch an opportunistic war to shore up uh, domestic legitimacy. None of this is true in terms of China's goals, its view of the usefulness of military force or how the Communist Party's legitimacy has been trending or is likely to trend um, over the next decade. But the frequency of US senior military and national security officials asserting this, that there is a risk of war in the near term, underscores just how dangerous this situation has become. War isn't the plan for the Communist Party of China, which has been executing a strategy to achieve eventual reunification for decades primarily through non-military means. One of the things that US folks seem to miss is that we, we frame this as though China has a military strategy for Taiwan. In fact, China has a political, economic, information, uh, cyber, and counterintelligence strategy, which has a military component, not the reverse. Instead, the real danger is that all of the factors that tended to preserve the status quo since China, US-China diplomatic recognition in 1979 have eroded and are likely to continue to erode. These include the military balance, which has swung decisively in China's favor across the Taiwan Strait, but also in many, ways, in many ways that military balance is the least consequential change in and of itself, because even now, China is not building an invasion fleet. The more destabilizing factors driving the dynamic are, first, Taiwan's domestic political and identity development where even the Kuomintang would pay a political cost to sustain its prior position on the 1992 consensus. Domestic sentiment on Taiwan is turning even more strongly against any form of unification under any timeline. Second, the emergence of full-blown US-China strategic rivalry, which increases Taiwan's attraction to both major US political parties as a litmus test of standing up to China. There's a myth that the main constraint against Taiwan independence has been the threat of Chinese military action. At least since the mid-1990s, the main constraint against more independence-focused policies and election outcomes on Taiwan has been pressure on Taipei from Washington. We are much more incentivized today and looking forward to play the Taiwan card due to our own bipartisan political dynamic than because of actions by even an explicitly pro-independence leader in Taipei, which President Tsai is not. China, finally, third, China's own emergence is a great power, with clear military dominance over Taiwan and seeming parity versus the United States. The Communist Party no longer has the excuse of not reacting violently to provocations because it is weak. Consider how China responded after the accidental U.S.-NATO bombing of their embassy in Belgrade in 1999. Um, China understood that it did not have the means to respond proportionally. So it responded through other measures. Those days are gone. China is no longer weak. Chinese domestic public opinion has grown more nationalistic as strategic rivalry with the US has played out and China has realized many of its great power ambitions. The core of the problem is that the United States, China, and Taiwan confront, that we confront can be seen from the 50-year-old position carefully wordsmithed then to acknowledge the PRC and ROC views in 1972 found in the Shanghai communique 
which still serves as the bedrock of U.S.-China relations. I'll just quote briefly, uh, not terrorize Bonnie here. The United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. It reaffirms its interest in a peacetime settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves. Today, the people, or a majority of the people on one side of the Taiwan Strait, do not consider themselves Chinese. And a significant majority of the people of Taiwan no longer maintain that Taiwan is a part of China. So the momentum toward crisis is structural in building, but crisis and even conflict doesn't mean invasion. China has full spectrum capabilities to pressure and drive a coercive dynamic. It was prepared in 2008 to kill people, destroy much of Taiwan's Navy Air Force infrastructure, and deter or blunt US intervention to punish or teach a lesson and satisfy Chinese domestic nationalistic domestic opinion. This is not the Communist Party or the PLA's first rodeo. As was evident even before Speaker Pelosi's August visit to Taiwan, the situation is again becoming militarized. Militarization means redefining major aspects of the status quo, not persistent crisis. The PLA is already doing this with daily flights and naval operations in the Taiwan Strait over the median line. They did it again today with 21 aircraft up and about half of which then crossed the median line, both uh, mostly in the southwest uh, quadrant. It can ratchet this up and down, and when provoked by Taiwan or Washington, or Washington, shift the lines even further, including by putting Taiwan to the U.S. in a position to shoot first and take responsibility for escalation. China has been working for 10 years to harden the Communist Party, the Chinese economy, the military, its technological base, and for the past few years, through its dual circulation policies, insulate itself against sanctions and resource constraints. It may not be ready for war, but it is better prepared for a crisis over Taiwan than it was just a few years ago. It's also, as the Department of Defense noted last year, massively expanding its nuclear forces to enhance its deterrent capability. When I started as an analyst at CIA uh, more years ago than I'd like to admit, China had about a dozen and a little bit more of ICBMs that could reach the United States. Today it has about 150. By the end of the decade, it will have 1,000 nuclear warheads, most of them mounted on ICBMs capable of ranging the United States. Many of the understandings, military factors, and ambiguous positions that enabled decades of peace, prosperity, and democracy on Taiwan are now eroding. Due to China's economic and military power, Taiwan's consolidating democracy led by the pro-autonomy DPP, and burgeoning U.S. determination to play the Taiwan card in its strategic rivalry with China. Despite the subdued U.S. reaction to China's unprecedented military response to Speaker Pelosi's visit, the United States and Taiwan have turned the page. Denying China a crisis it wanted showed how far China could go without risking war, very far indeed. Beijing now has a better sense of how to press further in the face of new provocations, both to avoid escalation or to put the onus on Washington and the United States for a conflict that results. The Chinese decision to use military force is conditions-based, and it has been relatively clear for decades, as that has been clear for rel relatively clear for decades, um, depending on the actions by Taiwan and the United States that would cause military conflict. More recently, the United States, which previously seemed to understand this, appears to now subscribe to a belief that Chinese use of force is just a matter of time. This creates a dynamic for serious crisis or war, 
where U.S. actions create the conditions for a war that it nominally seeks to deter. Alexander, over to you for your opening comments. Well, good morning. Uh, it's glad to be back at CSIS where I worked uh, in the late 1990s. I'm also very happy to uh, have my distinguished friend John Culver to appear with me in this debate. And uh, thank you, Bonnie, and uh, the China Power team uh, to set up this year's program. Uh, before starting my argument, uh, like John, I uh, uh, also wanted to make several clarifications on the uh, proposition. First, uh, I'm here today as a long-term uh, China watcher. Um, uh, and not as a uh, KMT representative in the United States. Uh, and my view presented here should not be attributed to the position of my party. Secondly, uh, I participate in this debate for the purpose of exploiting a critical security issue that is so important to the governments and people of the United States and Taiwan. I'm not here to defend or criticize the policy positions of uh, current governments in Washington, Taipei, or Beijing, or the general public sentiments uh, in the three countries. To me, this may not be a debate, but a mental exercise to share different angles of looking at this critical issue. Three, I, we all know that there, there are great uncertainties uh, in the analysis of strategic competition between the United States and China. And we also understand that professional assessment or debate on current affairs can only be done based on a certain level of rationality. So today we are not uh, in a blaming game or a guessing game. Uh, there are two elements that help me to frame uh, the construct of the issue. First, crisis or conflict may carry a different meaning to different people. If we name the Chinese military exercises between July 1995 and March 1996 uh, as the Taiwan Strait Missile Crisis, can we call the EP3 incident near Hainan Island in 2001 a conflict or a crisis? So I, wanna, I would not count a one-time unintended incident without further escalation as a conflict. Second, for the purpose of analysis and elaboration, I would focus my discussion on the timeline of the next two years before the United States presidential election in November uh, 2024. In today's debate, I uh, take the position against the proposition. I recall that when Bonnie reached me um, many several months ago and asked me if I wanted to uh, participate in this debate and I have a priority choice. Um, I immediately responded by choosing uh, the B or the position against the proposition. And here are the arguments for my uh, positions uh, under three different levels, the strategy level, the operational level, and decision makers level. At the strategy level, um, I make several points 
First, maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is in the interest of all parties. In the Indo-Pacific region, and has been the policy uh, of the United States. I mean, maintaining peace and stability. According to a news report, uh, in the virtual meeting in March this year and uh, the site meeting during the G20 uh, a few years, uh, a few days ago, President Biden has expressed that the United States does not seek to get into a new Cold War with China, does not seek to change the Chinese political system, does not seek to strengthen alliance against China, does not support Taiwan independence, and has no intention of getting into conflict with China. In Taiwan, uh, decades of public opinion polls have shown the massive majority support of the status quo, i.e. Uh, no unification, no independence, and no war. Even though the current DPP government does not recognize the 1992 consensus and suffers the absence of communication lines with Beijing, it has continued to claim the status quo as the official policy. Three, uh, despite the growing voice inside China calling for the use of force to resolve the political differences across the Taiwan Strait, and Beijing has never renounced the military option against a possible de jure independence of Taiwan. The Chinese government and uh, Xi Jinping have maintained the peaceful unification, quote-unquote, as the primary policy toward Taiwan as of today. In addition, with overwhelming diplomatic and economic leverage, Beijing has been able to expand the items in its toolbox to be used to coerce Taiwan into unification talks without applying force. Beyond the above-mentioned uh, base policies, the international reactions to the Russian invasion would also provide the Chinese uh, Communist Party and military decision-makers with lessons to learn in their thinking of military actions against Taiwan and the United States. In addition, the presidential elections in Taiwan in January 2024 and in the United States in November 2024 could bring tractions to a military conflict in the Taiwan Strait. A military conflict before January 2024 uh, may disrupt and possibly lead to a cancellation of the election in Taiwan and extended the DPP administration in power. And this is a factor that China needs to think about. And a military conflict in the Taiwan Strait between January 2024 and, um, and November 2024 may generate both Republican and Democratic candidates in a contest of anti-China campaigns and make the great power competition more unpredictable. Now I'm turning to the operational level. Also several points. First, China has not engaged in a local war for 43 years since the so-called punitive war against Vietnam in 1979, and Taiwan for 64 years since the second Taiwan Strait crisis in 1958. The two untested militaries and people 
with no real experience in the conduct of modern warfare, are very dangerous and run a high risk of unwanted process and results. And that must be a key concern to leaders and generals and admirals of all parties. Second, escalation control of any military conflict will be very challenging for everyone involved. No one can ensure that horizontal and vertical escalation can be well managed before an accident occurs. History has presented cases where unwanted war may take place due to unexpected small incidents, and that can add extra caution to leaders and war planners today. I understand that escalation control relies on sound command controlling communications on all sides, and that's not easy. But if the risk of an unwanted war is very high, all parties should pay more attention to tight control over their military activities, as we have witnessed uh, in the past several months uh, in the Taiwan Strait. Both China and the United States are nuclear powers, no matter uh, the large gap in nuclear arsenals, uh, the escalation to a nuclear exchange between China and the United States will bring a, a global disaster. Number three, a point that I specifically want to make, uh, prudency and caution in warfare, or in Mandarin Chinese, 慎战,谨慎的慎, and waging wars under a righteous cause, or in Mandarin Chinese, 师出有名, have been embedded in Chinese military culture. Students of Chinese military affairs must remember that Chairman Mao has also insisted that one should not fight a war without certainty. Disregard, disregarding Washington's policy of strategic ambiguity and strategic clarity in its war games and operations planning, Beijing has always assumed that the United States will intervene in the military conflict in the Taiwan Strait. That will definitely be in China's calculation of a Taiwan contingency. Now turn to a decision maker level. Two points. First, Xi Jinping's further consolidation of his power in the eyes of many may introduce, uh, may induce a military adventure in the Taiwan Strait. But a more confident Xi Jinping may also believe that time is on Beijing's side. And with his extended term in power, he does not need to get into a military conflict over Taiwan before November 2024. Second point, there are two publications by the Chinese Central Military Commission. The first one is called Study Outline of the Xi Jinping Strong Military Thought, or Xi Jinping Qiangjun Sixiang Xue Xi Gang Yao. And the second one, Q&A for the Learning of Xi Jinping's Strong Military Thought, or in Mandarin Chinese, Xi Jinping Qiangjun Sixiang Xue Xi Wen Da. Both books had caught my eyes and provided evidence 
that Xi Jinping believes that there are major deficiencies of the People's Liberation Army in the conduct of a modern high-tech warfare. I believe that Xi Jinping's priority is to maintain his personal power in high position as long as possible, is to maintain the Communist Party's control of one-party rule in China, is to fulfill the dream, the Chinese dream of the grand rejuvenation of a Chinese nation. Maybe for this reason, Xi Jinping is likely to struggle against elements that may delay, derail, or destroy the Chinese dream. A military crisis or conflict will not for, work for that priority that Xi Jinping wants. Christopher Johnson provides his observation in why China will play it safe. Jessica Chen-Weiss also wrote that the growing fatalism of some commentators neglects the interest of the United States, China, Taiwan, and the world, all shared in avoiding a shooting war. Yesterday, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, said, I think it would be unwise, it would be a political mistake, a geopolitical mistake, a strategic mistake, similar to what the strategic mistake that Putin has made in Ukraine. And I believe Xi Jinping understand that. Finally, I wanted to say that tension can be reduced, a crisis can be avoided if we maintain the communication channels open, if we balance military readiness and preventive diplomacy, and if we do not fall into the trap or vicious cycle between overreach and overreaction. Thank you. I want to now turn the floor to John for uh, any rebuttals or initial thoughts you have. Obviously, a rich set of remarks and comments to uh, address. Thank you. Uh, it was an impressive presentation by Alexander, unfortunately for me. Um, but <laughs> I would ask, though, you, you ended on an optimistic note. Um, and I have a hard time sort of seeing optimism because the things you prescribe of increasing communications, especially between, I, I assume, Washington and Beijing, um, an increase in use of diplomacy and avoiding overreaction or over, uh, overreach, um, I think then things would have to change in the current U.S.-China dynamic for those to be factors that actually add to stability. Um, my personal view, stepping out of sort of debate, debate persona, is um, perhaps the Biden-Xi meeting at, uh, in Bali is, is a, a floor on the decline of the relationship. Um, but I see sort of two, folk, two, two adversaries who have stopped digging but are still leaning on their shovels. Um, and some of the actions that US, the U.S. Congress, some in the U.S. Congress would like to bring would bring in the power equipment to uh, dig even deeper, faster. Um, so I think that something would have to change in order to move toward this more optimistic setting, given the trajectory, trajectory that we're on. Um, as I noted in my opening remarks, that to me the dynamic driving the risk of crisis or war um, isn't uh, really uh, China's military buildup or its actions in the Taiwan Strait. It's the decline of the U.S.-China condominium that really served as the main break for most of the last 40 years. Um, so that, those are my, my main thoughts in hearing your presentation. 
Yeah, John, uh, you know, we, we have known each other for a long time, and, uh, and I pretty much agree with the general observation and assessment that, um, you know, the Biden-Xi Jinping meeting in uh, Bali, Indonesia, uh, might be uh, on the section or part of optimism. Um, you know, um, if we wanted to see that the summit uh, lay a floor uh, that preventing the continual fall of the bilateral relationship, um, I guess most people in town, especially, uh, you know, uh, academics or think tank, you know, specialists, would still have some questions in mind. You know, because the debate de defines that um, there, whether if there will be a crisis or conflict occurring. But the real challenge for people like us or people, most people in this town, is how to prevent it. Um, there are tons of work to do. Um, we, we have no reason to be terribly optimistic about the bilateral relationship between the United States and China. Because we all know that uh, there are, uh, you know, certain level of stability uh, in Chinese decision making because it's a one-man show. But that's also the source of problem because we, um, uh, we don't know or the Chinese decision making process, especially uh, for now, after COVID, after uh, decoupling, after the trade war, after we cease exchange. Um, the, the process in Beijing became, becomes very opaque for any of us who are trying to figure out you know, what would be the right way to do our assessment. And reasonable enough that we ourselves would believe in. And that's the challenge. Of course, uh, for the position that I hold, uh, I have to be optimistic. But, but the, optimist, the optimism would, be, would have to be based on hard work. You know, it's how hard to have a summit. We all know that. We were in the government before. It takes hours, days, months of tough negotiations and fighting word by word. Um, and this time, um, uh, we do not have a joint uh, you know, statement between the two leaders. But if they were working on a joint statement, probably that will take another month or so to reach uh, the agreed version. So, um, and I think our, our best uh, bet is that how to, based on our existing knowledge or accumulated understanding of the other side, and, and try, to, try to find the best possible way to inform our decision maker that what would be the right course to do to avoid conflict. Because we heard from the senator this morning and we heard from every quarters that talking on one hand that we wanted to prevent war, we want to avoid conflict. But on the, but on the other hand, we are drafting bills and doing things and try to push uh, and, and that, that made uh, 
a lot of our Asian Pacific neighbors nervous. Uh, so this is a very tough period of time that we all uh, situated in. I think, uh, I guess my takeaway from this discussion debate so far is that neither of you believe that China intends to start a major crisis or a major conflict uh, against Taiwan in the next year or two. But please correct me if that wrong. Well, as I said in mine, um, I don't think China or Xi Jinping has a timeline for compelling unification or use of force. I think, though, that there, as I said in my presentation, it's conditions-based. And uh, the U.S. long accepted this, that China has been very clear about its red lines, which is an assertion by Taiwan of full independence from China, and especially international recognition of that. Um, secondly, if Taiwan were to acquire the means uh, to build nuclear weapons, I think that would be a red line. And Taiwan twi tr tried twice um, earlier in the 70s and 80s to acquire nuclear weapons. Both times they were detected and shut down by the United States, not by China. Um, and third would be if Taiwan, the situation on Taiwan became ungovernable, if there were um, large unrest. China's also sometimes touched on if there's a major presence of foreign forces. Uh, on Taiwan that it could constitute a causes bell on it. Um, and in my view, if, if, if those conditions are not met, China is willing to continue to pursue unification through non-military means. Which, you know, the, the thing, the problem with the term status quo is implies things have been in stasis. Things have been incredibly dynamic, especially over the last 20 years. Um, China has been pursuing unification through economic integration, through people-to-people exchanges across the strait. Prior to the pandemic, there were estimates or guesstimates of 2 million Taiwanese living in mainland China, mostly working in Chinese industries and electronics and other fields. And similarly, before the pandemic, there were upwards of a million, a million and a half Chinese visitors to Taiwan every year. Um, so you, you, had, you had all of these robust conditions that gave Beijing a reason to be patient, that these other conditions at least had the potential, if not the actuality, of building the possibility of uh, a political resolution to the Chinese Civil War, from their perspective. Um, it's a lot harder to see that today, partly because of the pandemic, the end of travel, um, sanctions on Chinese industry, new sanctions on semiconductor components that could reduce Taiwan's economic integration, uh, with China. So uh, I think the glue that had been holding this together is starting to fray. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, you know, I basically I agreed uh, John's assessment, uh, but I wanted to focus more on more, t you know, recent topic uh, or recent event. Um, in this particular uh, period of time, when both Washington and Beijing are talking about red lines. And some people say red line is very thin, and some people said it's one mile width. And so you can still have flexibilities on the line. And do we have a, you know, actually after the summit, do we, are we more comfortable than before the summit that the red line is clear? That may be the work that we need to find out in the next few days or in weeks. Uh, but, but, but in this uh, exchange, that how Beijing would insist and how the United States would respond to Beijing's insistence uh, would be an indicator for many. The people are watching 
not in this town, but also in all major capital cities in Asia Pacific. Uh, that is one thing. The other is that, you know, if we uh, recall, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal said that immediately after uh, uh, the August uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit and the August drill, uh, the White House started uh, to reach out Beijing and started to plan this, uh, you know, leadership summit. But if we review the uh, flying route of Speaker Pelosi, you know, from Malaysia to tai Taiwan, and, and also check with the navigation uh, route of U.S.'s Ronald Reagan, you know, that, you know, without any inside story, that will lead us to think whether it was based on a tacit understanding to avoid the, a conflict, or it could be a kind of conversation that occurred before that. Because, you know, there were four months at least, uh, from April to August, uh, for Speaker Pelosi's visit. You know, as a person living in Taiwan, uh, I'm, I'm still thinking, you know, whether the new speaker of the house would have a plan to uh, visit Taiwan again. And, um, and knowing that uh, the August drill planner is now the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission in Beijing and how he would react. Uh, so we got a lot of work to do. Uh, it, it, you know, I do, still do not believe that uh, uh, Beijing and Washington intentionally to inflict or ignite uh, a conflict. Uh, but there are communication lines uh, between uh, Indo-PACOM, I guess, uh, or Washington and Beijing. The only downside, I'll, I'll finish after this remark uh, at this point, the, the only thing missing that I feel uncomfortable is that during the Biden-Xi Jinping summit uh, two days ago, we, we saw the possible resumption of many dialogues, but not mail-mail, and that worries me. Thank you. So that leads to my second question, and I'll, I'll open this up to the floor relatively soon. So we talked about how um, your understanding of whether China intends to have a crisis or conflict. But then the second question is exactly, Alexander, what you were alluding to. What, what is the possibility that we could stumble into a crisis or a conflict due to miscalculations, accidents, or, for example, another speaker visit of which all three sides aren't coordinating to the extent that we saw in August? You know, uh, to a certain degree uh, that I, I tended to believe that if there is an unintended incident, uh, uh, occurred. Uh, there, there are phone numbers. Uh, you know, we used to joke that it doesn't matter whether you have the phone number because nobody will pick it up anyway. Uh, you, you find your phone unanswered during a real crisis. But I think um, we are at the point that Beijing also had a great deal at stake. You know, if they do not respond, then they also have significant consequences to bear. And um, I do not want to, because I don't know, I do not want to uh, 
think too much about who would call whom and whether the communication lines are multiple uh, between Washington and Beijing or, or Hawaii and Beijing. And Beijing. Uh, but I, uh, I'm a little bit worried about how Taiwan would handle the unintended incident uh, without a communication line. Uh, should we call the uh, Camp Smith and say, hey, bro, you know, we don't have a communication line. Can you call someone? Or we should think of, a, you know, plan uh, a, a possible mechanism in order to prevent an unintended incident and, and, you know, being elevated into an unwanted war. Well, um, it's easier to stumble if you're already moving downhill and there are a lot of rocks on your path. So I, I, that, that's sort of where I think we are right now. It, you could have an interesting debate about who has more open time on their calendar, our ambassador in Beijing or their ambassador in the United States, um, before he was elevated to the Politburo. Politburo. Um, so I, I think we're at a nadir right now. I, I would love to be optimistic about the robust communications, but I recall an incident that happened late in the last administration where Chairman Milley felt compelled to call his counterpart, uh, head of the Joint uh, Joint Operations Department in Beijing, not once but twice, to reassure him that political tensions building in the United States over the election um, were not uh, a wag the dog scenario that would cause the United States to lash out uh, against China in order to uh, achieve a political outcome in the United States. The mere fact that, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs thought that that was a plausible belief held by Chinese generals or political leaders is kind of terrifying. And it says more to me about the current scenario and how the Chinese think about us than any of the more kind of lofty things that we've been debating and discussing. Um, I think you, we have to be mindful that China's view of the United States is by design and for Communist Party purposes, deeply paranoid. You know, they don't believe that we accidentally bombed their embassy in Belgrade in 1999. Um, they believe and find it useful and necessary to believe that we were behind uh, popular uprisings in Xinjiang and the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. So through that paranoid lens, things by the United States that are maybe for performative effort in the United States or have to do with our own domestic political posturing aren't viewed by the Communist Party that way. They view them as part of the actions of a declining hegemon, jealous of its power, willing to lash out to destroy countries and entire regions in order to maintain their primary position. Um, and so that is something you have to keep in mind. And that lens, which I think General Milley seemed to understand well at the end of the Trump administration, is something you have to take into account when you consider how our actions, our intentions, and our, our moves are, are viewed by them. I know I said I would open up, but I did want to follow up one more question. So if we have another House Speaker going to, China, uh, to Taiwan, Alexander, do you think Taiwan would respond the same? And what do you, how do you think China may respond? And then John, same to you. How do you think the United States may respond? How do you think China may respond? So. Well, I have to say that, um, you know, Taiwan would, would not be in the position to uh, say to the next speaker and say, you are not welcome. Uh, we have our security concern. I think we will, uh, take a positive uh, response to uh, the possible visit. But I think we will also need to learn from the lessons of 
uh, August, uh, two month, three months ago, that uh, things could be uh, even more severe than uh, before. So uh, I would say uh, several points. Number one, we need to work with the visiting party as well as the White House more closely. And we, as a partner, if we claim that this is the best period of U.S.-Taiwan relationship, I think we will have the heart and we need to sit down with both the White House and the Speaker's office to go through all the possible scenarios. Um, and point number two is that we need to consider to signal uh, Beijing that the visit will be true and um, the speaker is coming. Um, and it may carry different weight if that is a bipartisan delegation or a, a single party delegation and who are in the delegation. I, I think, you know, maybe people in Taiwan would have a specific DNA to understand how China would think uh, what is sensitive or not. I, I think political signaling without a communication line is also necessary for the current government uh, to think of. And number three is that we need to review how our military responded to the August crisis. Uh, we did not do a good job. You know, there were debate that whether, to what extent that we need to inform our general public about what's going on that particular day. Whether there will be, a, you know, sending siren or nationwide text messaging alerting uh, people that there are missiles across the bow or just pretending uh, don't look up uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and translate that to a social resilience. Uh, uh, I, I think these are the three points that I think we need to think about. So if I could summarize quickly, Taiwan needs to more, Taiwan will say yes to the visit, work more closely with the United States, develop firmer measures against potential PLA exercise. So it seems like a stronger position than what we saw in August. Is that a correct? Well, we need to correct and learn our own lessons from the past. So John, how do you think China may respond then? Well, I think they... Alexander can correct me. I think recently, within the last couple of months, Taiwan's military announced that they've given the power to local forces to respond to violations of 12-mile air or maritime violations with uh, lethal force. So that's an interesting step, and if that sets the conditions for uh, what could what could occur in a future speaker visit? The thing is, when when Speaker Pelosi went, the U.S. could plausibly argue that it wasn't unprecedented that Speaker Gingrich had traveled to Taiwan. I think in '97. Um, the thing is, he traveled to China first on that same trip, um, and the context of U.S.-China relations was vastly different. So it wasn't viewed as it wasn't liked by the Chinese, but it wasn't a casus belli because he had sort of. Uh, you know, acknowledge China by visiting there first and going to Taiwan second. Um, at the time, the U.S. China were actually in kind of a high spot in bilateral relations between the end of the Taiwan Missile Crisis, three presidential summits in the next 18 months between Jiang Zemin and President Clinton, and finally, uh, which all ended after the Belgrade Embassy bombing. Um, 
I think, as I noted in my comments uh, at the open, the Chinese now know exactly how far they can go, which is quite far indeed. You know, let's recall, they fired ballistic missiles over Taiwan, at least four, that landed in missile impact areas around the island. They had never done that. Um, it's also important to note what they didn't do. They didn't challenge Taiwan's 12-mile limit. Um, there were reports of some drones flying over the offshore islands at Jinmen, Matsu Archipelago, Dongyin, but those looked like they were civilian drones, not the PLA. If the PLA wants to fly drones, you're going to know it. Um, so the problem is that if a future speaker goes, it's not the first time since 1997, it's the second time in 12 months or 18 or 24 months. So now it's a pattern. It's now a precedent that speakers of the House, the highest uh, representative of the US legislative co-equal arm of government, and number two after the vice president, in, in the line of succession to the president, is now routinely going to visit Taiwan. Um, you know, the reason why the Chinese staged a crisis in 95 over Li Denghui's visit to Cornell was because uh, the U.S. decision to allow him to go to Cornell as a sitting president, even for a, quote, personal visit, um, broke the, the commitments the United States had made to China upon recognition in 1979. So if we start to allow and even encourage and condone uh, high-level officials of the U.S. government, the, the leader of the co-equal branch of Congress to routinely visit Taiwan, the Chinese are going to make a very cogent point that we should listen to, which is the foundations of relations are now being destroyed by the United States. You know, that there are alternatives to even the fraught peace that we've come to expect. There, the alternatives fall short, perhaps, of all-out war, crisis, or conflict, but they could mean the end of diplomatic relations, harder communications between the United States and Beijing, and probably between Taiwan and Beijing, uh, rather than more. So I just sort of pose to the audience, um, you know, in, in 2001, we had a, an incident where a Chinese fighter plane collided with a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft near Hainan Island. Um, the American crew, through amazing efforts by the pilot and co-pilot, landed that aircraft safely on Hainan Island. Um, the two presidents started to communicate first through the ambassador and defense attaches in each capital and then directly um, or through public statements so that that so-called EP3 crisis was resolved in 11 days. Um, the U.S. now flies many multiples of these reconnaissance flights that we flew back in 2001. We now routinely conduct freedom of navigation operations both off the coast of China but especially in the South China Sea. So there's a lot more aircraft and ships of both countries moving in close proximity to each other with greater frequency. Uh, it's a matter of, of, of when, not if, another crisis occurs. If the circumstances were similar to 2001, do you think that crisis would be resolved in 11 days? I doubt it, because the crisis communication mechanisms that existed in 2001 were robust and deep. Um, the ambassador could expect to have his phone calls to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the State Counselor returned, returned quickly. The defense attaché had numerous contacts in Beijing with his PLA counterparts due to frequent visits by high-level officers to both countries. Um, today, we would have to rebuild crisis communications in the midst of crisis. Um, and I fear that that could turn into something more like the Pueblo incident with North Korea in the 1970s and the EP3 crisis of, of 2001. Sorry, did you want to add it? Well, <laughs> just, uh, you know, 
we, we, we are uh, lazy, we are stupid, you know, we only <laughs> responded to crises, you know, you know, because, you know, like us, we work at think tanks and we, 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 we talk in classrooms, we, we wanted to alert people that pre-planning, that preventive measures, that thinking ahead, do war games, are important. Uh, but, uh, but we also serve in the government. We know there how busy we have been. And it's extremely difficult to think ahead. And so, you know, just like cross-trade relationship in the past 30 years, we always responded to crisis or incidents. Uh, we, would, we did not do our homework well. Great. Well, thank you, Alexander. Thank you, John. I want to open up the floor now to questions. So we'll take a question from the room and then take one online. So I see a number of hands up. I think the one in front of me is waving very vigorously. So here, you first, and then we'll uh, turn to online questions. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Dimitri from the Financial Times. So I have a slightly different version of Bonnie's question. Uh, forget about Kevin McCarthy for a second. What if uh, Ron DeSantis, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, et cetera, et cetera, all start to put Taipei on the campaign trail after Des Moines and South Carolina and New Hampshire. Do you think the Chinese would react even more aggressively than they reacted to Pelosi, particularly if one of those candidates looks like they might become the president? God. Um, you know, if, 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 Beijing had, if Beijing has good American studies, if Beijing has necessary pool of talent that understand domestic American politics, they will send papers and alerts to their decision makers that you run a terribly high risk of playing into American domestic politics. And, and, and that would not be in Beijing's interest. I'm not sure that they have, but, uh, but uh, I, I think it's going to be very, very sensitive. And I hope that they do have the experts that understand not only U.S.-China relationship, bad relationship, but understand the American politics, understand the two political parties, understand the nuance and the influence. You know, I shouldn't say that. But you know, on Capitol Hill. You know, there are a lot of things that probably people, uh, you know, living in another side of the world cannot understand, but will fall into the trap. Um, Dimitri, um, it, the visit isn't, isn't what could cause the crisis. It's the fact that you'd have them, as, the way you conveyed it, which may be plausible, would be a sort of train of Republican senior officials all vying for the highest office in the land, suddenly putting Taiwan on their map. I think the context, in, you know, right now, like um, Michael Pompeo has been to Taiwan, I think, three or four times since he left office, by my count, um, and, and seemingly well compensated, if you believe the press. So that alone, I didn't notice a crisis over the last Mike Pompeo visit, right? So that by itself isn't a trigger. I think the trigger would be would be the policy positions of those candidates and the policy positions of those vying for the nomination, because I suspect many and perhaps most of the leading candidates for office, uh, with the possible exception of a retiree in Florida, 
would actually be campaigning that we should drop strategic ambiguity and recognize Taiwan as a separate entity from China and commit full-throatedly to Taiwan's military defense. I think that that is what would precipitate the crisis, not just the you know camera shots on the on the tarmac in Taipei um, or, or Shinju, but it would be the policy shift signaled by the Republican Party toward a, a virtual, from a Chinese perspective, abandonment of the basis for diplomatic relations. Great, thank you. Oh, sorry, uh, online question, Brian. Yeah, so uh, this question was submitted uh, online uh, from Emma McGill, a student at American University. Uh, she says, Dr. Huang, you mentioned that China has learned from watching Russia and the cost of its military invasion. However, with so many Western resources directed towards Ukraine, China also has a window of opportunity to push into Taiwan without as much resistance from the West. So how does the invasion of Ukraine impact the likelihood of conflict escalating over Taiwan and potential U.S. responses? Um, I'm the person, uh, at least in Taiwan, I have constantly uh, say to my audience and students that do not look at Taiwan through the lens of Ukraine because we are different. One reporter uh, came to Taiwan uh, uh, and did an interview with me. And, and uh, when we sat down, he said, you know, I, I just uh, came from Donbas, Ukraine. And uh, I'm a, you know, war reporter. Um, and uh, he said, you, if you were not there, you do not understand that how courageous that the Ukrainian people fight. And you will not understand that, you know, exactly because he was there before February 24 and after, and in the zone. And he said that when when the war started and uh, there were immediate announcement uh, or order uh, directive from President Zelensky that all the men above the age of 18 should stay home, stay in the country. Um, and he said, if China attacked Taiwan, would would we make the same uh, policy announcement? I say we won't. He said, why? I said, because we are an island, you know, because no one can go out anyway. And so that's a different uh, scenario. I, I, th I think uh, China understand that the difficulties for Taiwan to seek foreign assistance once the military operation started. But China also learned the lesson that how the world together responded in other form, if not military only. You know, the different, totally different characteristics of economic sanction. Um, you know, the China's, China understand their own, uh, you know, vulnerability on uh, energy imports, if not only and in addition to food imports. So, so I think, um, you know, if we make argument based on rational assessment uh, and, and believe that everyone in all three capitals are cool-headed, and there, there are attractions there, uh, that it, it, it would not be a free fall of the uh, scenario. John, do you want to um, weigh in? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Alex just said. Um, I think it's hard, it's too easy to overdraw lessons from Ukraine for Taiwan. It's always had very unique circumstances. The one 
because there's a lot of kind of rumble in the US, you know, maybe I'm spending too much time on Twitter, but a lot of calls for enhanced deterrence, and by that they mean sort of full-throated military focus on Taiwan, even at the expense of Ukraine. Um, but I, I think the Chinese Communist Party can't help but observe something, which is th despite the aggressiveness of the Russian invasion, uh, its human rights violations, its war crimes, that NATO has not directly intervened. You know, calls to establish a um, no-fly zone over Ukraine were, I think, wisely uh, ignored. Um, and even with the recent incident yesterday in Poland, um, you could tell that, you know, the idea of bringing, you know, we don't want World War III. We don't want to conduct combat operations that could easily escalate against a very credible nuclear power, which is, in that, and then that context I noted, China's nuclear weapons buildup. They're going to quintuple their inventory of nuclear warheads, most of which will be on ICBMs capable of reaching the United States over the course of this decade. And they're in the midst of that now. Um, people seem to talk as if the lessons of Ukraine with regard to the risk of nuclear escalation won't apply in the case of Taiwan. I find that very disturbing. China's been a credible nuclear power for decades. It's now a very highly credible and will soon be a near peer in terms of ICBM capability. You know, US and, US and Russian ICBM totals are treaty limited at 1,550 each. Um, we then have a couple of thousand other various warheads rolling around in our inventory, hopefully not rolling around, but actually highly secure. Um, so China, you know, at, at the time, you know, for decades had 18 ICBMs that could hit us. Now they've got a couple hundred, soon they'll have a thousand. That the U.S. could cavalierly decide that the rules of nuclear escalation and deterrence don't apply, because one lesson I think they have learned from Ukraine is that um, credible nuclear deterrence enables conventional conflict in a, in, a, in a near state that's not a treaty ally, rather than deters it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Dong Huiyu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. And uh, Dr. Huang mentioned uh, General Milley's statement yesterday. I also noticed that uh, he said that the PLA uh, is not yet ready to attack Taiwan, but he admitted that uh, uh, maybe his evaluation uh, is wrong because any political in incident may change the decision very quickly. So my question for John and Alex is, from your perspective, what kind of political incident or scenario may change the decision very quickly and advance the timeline? Thank you. So I, I think that China has been very clear on what it would consider red lines. And um, one of my core assumptions that so far hasn't, I haven't had to reassess is that if those conditions were met, you know, I mentioned them earlier, China will go to war. Now, it may not invade, because that depends on specific capabilities and its assessment of the level of risk that it would assume. But it has tremendous coercive capabilities. I recently wrote a piece for a competing think tank, nowhere near as good as CSIS, for Carnegie, <laughs> that explained from a perspective of an old intelligence analyst who looked at China for way too long, what that would look like, what it means for China to go to war, what it means to go to full-scale mobilization, to prepare its population for the idea that expectations of robust economic growth, which have become the norm for the last generation and a half in China, would no longer be the basis for party legitimacy, that instead it would be 
nationalism, sovereignty, the defense of China's claim to the island against uh, uh, unacceptable provocation by Taiwan or the United States. So in my mind, if, if China decides to go to war, it's going to go to war in kind of an old-fashioned way. Uh, it, will be, it will be reignite the Chinese Civil War. Their goal will be reunification. They will seek through economic, military, political information, cyber, and diplomatic means to set the conditions for eventual victory. If the invasion doesn't look plausible because of early US intervention, despite nuclear threat, um, then they will keep setting those conditions because Taiwan sits in their front yard and the US has to come around the planet at the end of very long supply chain in order to sustain a military presence that can preserve Taiwan. The Chinese would have to be able to, you know, would accept and I think would well understand after five years of trade war and pending even more severe sanctions in the minds of some in the Hill or in the administration, that it's going to bear an incredible economic cost uh, if it chooses to use coercive power against Taiwan. But I think that they would take those costs. That they have been hardening the party, the economy, its technological base, its energy infrastructure. In a way, for reasons not directly tied to imminent war, China's been preparing for that future. Um, in order to insulate themselves from diplomatic and economic pressure. Uh, General Milley always uh, said that in his assessment that he thinks that uh, President Xi Jinping is a rational actor, right? So I, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's always fun, to, you know, to do this exercise, you know, to imagine, because I do war games all the time. Um, but the issue is that, you know, if we are talking about a near term, short term, uh, one or two years, a political event or a military incident that may escalate. I, I think uh, there are so many different dozens of ways to, to respond to that uh, from uh, on the part of China. Uh, you know, uh, in August, my my worry was not, uh, you know, missile being uh, flying across the bow. My uh, worry is that Beijing decided to extend it from 72 hours to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Then that's the totally different calculation for us because all the incoming shipping, energy supply will be disrupted. So, so maybe there you know, as I said, there could be a vertical escalation. But how about horizontal? You know, uh, we still have more than one million Taiwan citizens living and working on the mainland, you know. So there are, that's why I have constantly said that Taiwan needs to be careful because of our own vulnerability. We need to be smart. Um, so I don't have a direct answer to you, but uh, still I do not believe that, you know, people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, uh, you know, started to think uh, in the way that we will have to go into a military conflict in the short term. Thank you, Alexander. Another online question? Yeah, so uh, we have another question. this we have another question uh, online from Dr. Morgan, retired DIA, uh, which is, do you expect more aggressive Chinese intelligence operations, uh, that is Ministry of State Security, directed against the US, whether that's domestic, uh, globally, or, or in the cyber realm? 
take a shot at this? Well, John he, is pointing the at me, perfect person to answer that. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, uh, they've been more aggressive anyway. Um, so even outside of the context of some scenario, you know, I think one of the, the major changes of the last 20 years, and there are a myriad, is the Ministry of State Security uh, had to become an actual intelligence organization. Um, They've always been focused at least as much on counterintelligence inside China as they were on gaining access to foreign secrets. Um, but I think because, uh, paradoxically, China's success in the cyber domain compelled the Ministry of State Security as China's primary human collector to really up their game. So they've been aggressive. And you can track it from the Glenn Shriver case 10 years ago now um, where they change their trade craft are using non-Chinese, non-Chinese, you know, ethnicity targets um, and practicing what I would call classic trade craft for the first time uh, against the United States. They've also developed their own cyber capabilities, although they're far from the main or even, uh, you know, dominant cyber actor within the Chinese intelligence and military network. So short answer, yes, but they were doing that anyway. I think I saw testimony from FBI Director Ray just yesterday that China's uh, industrial and economic espionage by China against the United States exceeded all other countries combined. I assume he's using some estimate of sort of value of the property stolen or it could be number of hacking incidents. Um, so yes, but that's been the trend anyway. It hasn't been tied to a Taiwan scenario. I think what an actual conflict or crisis could precipitate would be destructive actions by the Chinese in the cyber domain, um, not just intelligence gathering or uh, property theft. Great. Uh, In-person question here. Geert van Brandt, retiree, interested in, the, uh, in, in Asia in general. Um, has it ever dawned on the CIA, the military, NATO, that the U.S. hasn't won a single war since World War II except Grenada, and despite the fact that the U.S. has spent trillions, think Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea is still not resolved, does that ever enter the calculations in their war games, the fact that we've never won a war since World War II? I guess I would translate that to um, how ready is the United States for a large-scale conflict? Uh, well, I, I hesitate to comment on U.S. policy or wars that began and, and ended or ended in sta stalemate before I was born. Um, I, I think, you know, that the, usually the, the do dominant mindset of the U.S. government on whether or not conflict is needed depends on whether we think we have other avenues to pursue national priorities. And, um, you know, a very wise person inside the USIC once told me that, um, you know, using the military, using military force um, is plan B. Um, diplomacy and non-coercive means are plan A, and there is no plan C. So uh, I, I think that, you know, we'll continue to go forth uh, as we have trying to assess the risk and hopefully learning from the past. So another online question? Yeah. Um, uh, this question is from uh, Mike Moraz from the U.S. Uh, Defense Department. If current U.S. military deterrence actions increase the risk of unintended, unintended escalation into a conflict, 
where and how should the U.S. military assure allies and partners in the region while reducing that risk? If the PRC assumes the U.S. will intervene and has a, a, a combat-capable force, are deterrent actions even required? Great, thank you. And I think uh, if you want, you can also push back on the question itself. Well, it's, um, I have to admit, it's a bit sensitive to me to respond, okay? Because, because I know something, but I can't say it. Uh, <laughs> the, I would say that um, uh, overt activities uh, uh, or using uh, uh, you know, certain activities for political signaling or, or you know, posturing, uh, you know, sometimes becomes, um, you know, non-productive. Okay, but but uh, but I still, you know, as a Taiwanese, I I would still hope that substantial, below the radar, you know, and uh, there are a lot of things that can be done. Uh, here in the front. Yeah, hi. Uh, Tina Chong from Voice of America's China branch. My question is after the uh, Biden Xi uh, summit meeting, uh, uh, some analysts are saying that uh, Xi Jinping will now, because he's confident, uh, and he, he will now uh, conduct more foreign visits and uh, uh, to change the great uh, wolf warrior uh, uh, diplomacy and be more like uh, charismatic. Uh, so my thinking is, my, my question is, uh, how does that affect uh, his attitude or policy or posture toward Taiwan? Will there be uh, less of a uh, like gray zone operations, or uh, will he uh, change like the approach to Taiwan? Thank you. I don't obviously don't speak for the U.S. government. I suspect Alexander doesn't either, no. but. Um, I would temper my expectations. I think that the Taiwan Strait dynamic and China's policy is based on some pretty fundamental ground bedrock, and uh, it's not going to shift because of one meeting, no matter how productive with the President of the United States. Um, I think, you know, if you see more of Xi Jinping abroad, it's because they're loosening COVID restrictions, and he's less fearful than he was 18 or 24 months ago about the potential health risk of traveling. Although I understand that at the G20, um, Hun Sen then tested positive for COVID. Correct me if I'm wrong. And our president had met with Hun Sen just two days before. So the risk is still out there. But I think Xi Jinping is going to show the Chinese flag more with a higher profile here in 2023. Um, you, you couldn't do with a lower profile because until a few months ago when he went to Central Asia, he hadn't left China for going on two years. Um, I don't think that if you really want to signal that wolf warrior diplomacy is going to recede and be replaced by actual diplomacy, I'm not sure you would have uh, elevated Xin Gong uh, from the embassy here to a more senior position within the foreign affairs framework. Okay, I'm cognizant we have five minutes. I want to collect a, uh, a couple of questions in the room. Actually, I only see four questions in the room, so let's collect, oh, sorry, five. Let's collect them, and then uh, we'll give the floor to Alexander and John for whatever comments you may have or responses to the questions. Thank you. My name is uh, Ken Skate from Mar uh, Marvillian Corporation. 
Uh, so uh, my question, I, I think this is very extreme and a hypothetical question, but if the status quo in, in uh, Taiwan threat is maintained until 2045 or 2046, and you have a, a similar debate again, so which side do you want to take? So in other words, uh, for CCP, uh, to what extent uh, do you think the you know, the Taiwan unification or uh, Chinese rejuvenation or second hundred dream uh, is is a very concrete goal. But do you think that CCP can uh, uh, can can uh, delay this this goal beyond the the, the twenty forty nine? Hi, uh, my name is Lauren, and I'm a student at American University. And my question for um, both of you is, what policy gaps do you think you can identify for United States um, deterrence to try and encourage um, the uh, Chinese government to allow for Taiwan to maintain its current status? Hello, my name is Max and I'm from Munich, Germany, and I've got a short question because the focus is always on competition and to avoiding conflict between the US and China. And to follow up the speech of the Senator Markey, um, do you see any fields of cooperation or any, or any common goals that could, uh, that could have the power to improve the relationship between the US and China? Senator Markey said the fight against climate change do you see any other fields that could have the power to improve the relationships? Okay, I, I think I see, saw the lady back there in the red. Oh, okay, okay, and then these two questions here, and then um, one, the front row. Hi, uh, Eric Lachica from the U.S. Filipinos for Good Governance. Uh, next week, um, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris will be in the Philippines for two days, and she's going to focus uh, on the, uh, the upgrading the Philippine Coast Guard, the, uh, the, white sheep, the white ship strategy. Do you think that's uh, going to be a good move and welcomed uh, by Taipei? And also, it'll be viewed as uh, non-threatening. It's uh, going to be protecting the fisheries of the, of the Philippines. Thank you. Hi, my name's Max Bessler. I'm with the economics program right upstairs. Uh, I just had a quick question in the vein of that gentleman's question, too, about cooperation. I was wondering whether the recent Xi Jinping and Biden summit meeting and the follow-up uh, plan with uh, Secretary Blinken visiting China, does that affect your calculus and position at all over this debate proposition? Is there a chance for cooperation headed forward in economic sort of spheres specifically? Great, thank you. So as we give uh, Alexander and John some time to figure out which questions they can answer in the remaining time left. I encourage folks to do the post-debate vote voting right now. Uh, so again, the voting procedure is exactly the same. Uh, you can either go to online, the online link, or you can go, you can text 22333, China Power, vote A for agree, uh, and B for disagree. So while folks are doing that, as we're seeing the results come in, uh, Maybe I'll go to Alexander first for any questions that you want to answer, and, uh, and then John for any questions that you have time for to answer. I'll just respond to the question that I feel that I could, you know, do it. Um, I'm not sure whether we should think 
there are what kind of policy gap that China allows. I think it's uh, multilateral. It, it, you know, especially, um, I would say, in the past two, three years, and, um, you know, even with the United States, we, we, we cannot see a, a country that would dominate and define that without working with the allies to define, you know, what kind of policy uh, is, or we will uh, relinquish our position and let China define it. You know, I was only responded to the question about the Philippines. You know, because uh, for Taiwan, uh, if we are talking about military terms, um, we are not terribly worried to, about issue or incident to our north because the U.S.-Japan alliance is right there. You know, every ship, every aircraft passing through Miyako Strait would be monitored, and that's their vulnerability. But for Bashi Channel and... Um, the waters between Taiwan and the Philippines. That's the key, that's the problem, and that's the most military activity that Chinese People's Liberation Army had conducted. So we would like to see a stronger U.S.-Philippine collaboration on, or the increase of uh, the Filipino capability. Of course, I admit that we have sovereignty claims issue uh, between uh, re the Republic of China and the Republic of the Philippines. But, but, but at this moment, I think that a strengthening of the Filipino uh, defense capability and capacity is in the interest of Taiwan. I think I'd, I'd like to uh, respond to about how we can build um, cooperation or at least see an opportunity in the wake of the Biden-Chi meeting at, in Bali. Um, yeah, I think it's good. I mean, if the two sides want to put a floor under the decline in bilateral relations and start to regularize senior context, I mean, this would be the first time the Secretary of State has been to China in that position. Um, partly because of pandemic, I mean, but they were meeting in third countries with Chinese counterparts. So that just shows you kind of how distant the relationship had become. Um, I, I don't argue for talk for talk's sake. I think that was a problem with the previous strategic and economic dialogue model where it dominated the calendar and the talks are going to happen whether relations were progressing smoothly or not. But I think you want to be in the room and be heard directly, not through filters, not through the press. You want to be able to speak frankly to them, uh, frame areas of competition if possible, and I think you know, both sides have talked about kind of global goods um, that could be a basis um, I think for the U.S., if I were going to be policy prescriptive, which I spent 40 years trying not to be, uh, do more, say less. Um, you can do a lot with Taiwan and reassure without announcing it through the Pentagon Public Affairs Office or the White House. If you're doing something militarily around the island, on the island, the Chinese will know. You don't need to tell them. They, they have their own means to know. Um, and Taiwan will know, and they will draw assurance from that. Um, I think that, you know, as this issue has gone from being the kind of bailiwick of experts to the fodder of pundits, um, that it's become politicized in the U.S. in a way that, you know, we, we had mercifully not been, except for episodic crises. Um, and, and I think we, we need, you know, uh, on the U.S. to sort of take a breath and 
um, conduct U.S. diplomacy, U.S. military operations, um, allied uh, reassurance uh, through good diplomatic means, not always rely on Twitter. Great. With that, uh, let's uh, look at the post-debate results. I, oh, I think the, <laughs> the results have not changed so much. So, uh, but I, I personally kind of am in the position where John is, which is uh, very pessimistic. So, but not that the two of us, our results, our views actually weigh very much there. But on that note, I do want to thank uh, Alexander and John very much for this very fascinating debate and very enriching discussion. So I, I'd like to give a round of applause to our debaters.